Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Father, as we continue on in this great prophecy, we pray, Lord, that you will both show us the meaning historically as well as prophetically, that you will help us to understand, and that you will continue to open up before us the mysteries of your word, things that were mysteries long ago, but things that you have now revealed by your Spirit through Jesus, your Son. And I pray for encouragement, especially for the guys this morning. Encouragement for all of the men here. And I pray your blessing on this teaching now, as given by your Spirit through us, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, some of you guys had the weekend without your wives home, and uh, you're planning some special things, you have some time to get the house cleaned, to prepare to take them out on a lovely trip in the San Juans next week. You've got flowers on the counter. For me, it was pure survival. (laughs) As Brian said, a number of our ladies are at the fall retreat this morning. Uh, And it got me thinking about our guys. I know a lot of our women are here as well. I'm I'm glad you are all here. Here or there, worshiping Jesus, it's all good, right? But I was thinking about the guys. Since I knew some of the women would be away, I began thinking about the men. And as I read through this, there are some thoughts that came to me. And So I'd like to primarily address the brothers this morning, if I may, to have what I would call a brobel study. Yeah, a little Brobel study today at the bridge. Because I still believe that masculinity is a good thing. I, I still believe that embracing biblical manhood is right and God honoring and in line with His created order. That men can still take up, should still take up, the mantle of leadership, not lording it over, but loving as Christ loved the church. Which, by the way, is a picture of ultimate sacrifice, right? That being a man of God as opposed to a man of the world is every man's call. Provided we have ears to hear and hearts to receive that call from the Lord. We live in a culture that is saying to men, either hide your manhood, push down your manhood, step back from your manhood, or you're going to get called out as a chauvinist, as macho, as some bullheaded idiot. And all you have to do is is watch a sitcom, the news, any number of TV or Netflix dramas, and you see how men are portrayed. Typically, they're not too with it. They're not too bright. And those who are tough, and those who are strong, and those who step out to lead, often just stomp all over everybody. We do not have a good picture of what it means to be a man in the world, at least in this culture, anymore. So guys, 
pay a special close attention this morning. I believe that the application uh, is, is for all of us, but especially for the men. Now the interpretation, of course, is for all of us because there's only one interpretation. There's only one interpretation in Scripture. There are those who would say, oh, there's many different interpretations and that's why we all see the Bible differently. No, there's only one correct interpretation of God's Word. And the Lord told us as much, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That means none of the prophets sat down and thought, what do I need to write here to encourage Israel? What do I need to pen to to get this this group motivated or to, to cause this event to happen? They didn't think about it in their own minds. They were given the word, spoke by God. And God's word is absolutely true. There's one interpretation. Now there are many, as we've talked about, applications of that singular interpretation. So what we want to do is seek to know what the word means, what the interpretation is, and then we can apply it any number of ways. See, that's the beauty of God's Word. Every time you go through it, if you go through cover to cover and you go back again, you find all new things. Not new interpretations, but new applications of the Word. And God is always by His Spirit showing us new ways to apply things to our lives. And we get struck by things that we may have read a hundred times, but suddenly there's something fresh and new in it. Well, the interpretation hasn't changed. But the meaning in my life has So one interpretation, many applications. Let me start with this question. When I say, Red Rider, what do you think about? (laughs) BB guns. That was the first answer. Right on. A Christmas story. Ralphie Parker. You'll shoot your eye out. Right? For those of you who have seen the movie, and for those of you who haven't, it's all right, but i got to tell you, I love that movie. And I know there are those who think, well, Rick, this is not the best movie in the world, the best portrayal of Christmas. I think it's a perfect portrayal of a child at Christmas time. I have not seen a better portrayal of the mania, the sheer craze that you see enter the eyes of children as the month approaches. Yesterday, Naomi and David and I headed out to Costco. We just had to get some things. And they were talking about a few different things. And, and, and all of a sudden, Naomi said, i got to start working on my Christmas list. We hadn't even seen the big snowman at Costco yet. And David's like, yeah! And they got home and started working on Christmas lists. I'm like, it's October! The maze. For Ralphie Parker, if you've seen the movie, you know it was Red Rider's trusty carbine. That 200-shot range model air rifle for the compass and the stock. I'm telling you about this because, as we talked about on Wednesday night, in the first chapter of Zechariah, the prophet starts firing off one vision after another. Eight visions in all from chapter 1 through chapter 6. We already looked at the first vision Wednesday night. We're now to the second vision of these eight, all received on the same night. And the first is a vision of a rider on a red horse, the red rider. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. I saw at night. Now, let me explain something right there. I saw at night. He wasn't dreaming. Okay, this was a vision. It was nighttime, but he wasn't asleep having some bizarre set of dreams. He saw at night, and the indication is he had a vision. He was completely conscious and aware, and I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, 
And he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. The Bible identifies the man on the red horse as the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew, a physical manifestation of God Himself. Even the rabbis in the Babylonian Talmud recognize this, that this is the Holy One of Israel, that this rider on the red horse is a what, what some would call a theophany, or better, a Christophany, an actual manifestation in the flesh of God. And in my studies over the years, I have come to this conclusion, whenever God shows up in the flesh, it's Jesus. Jesus showing up. And and I, I think I mentioned last week, I would look at Scripture growing up as a kid, and I thought Jesus didn't show up until the New Testament. And it completely blew my mind when I read John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wait a minute, so He was in the beginning. So He was there a long time before. In fact, He was before. In fact, He's God. You know, my mind was just blowing all over the place. But here we have the Malach Yahweh and this angel of the Lord. This is the same one who, who came to Abraham. The Malach Yahweh. The same one who captained Joshua. The same one who guided Gideon. He's the fourth man in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And again, we talked about that at length in our midweek study. It was funny, we, we started and I said we're not going to finish even chapter 1. I think people relax thinking they'd be out of there in about 45 minutes. An hour and 20 minutes later, <laughs> we were still rolling. God's Word is a powerful, powerful thing. But this is the one. The man on the red horse, the red rider, if you want to call him that. The angel of the Lord is the one who would become the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And I have to point that out before we even do the second vision. You need to understand that because Jesus is the focal point of all the visions and prophecies of Zechariah. Now they come to comfort Israel, to encourage the Jewish people. 520 B.C., they're back from Babylonian captivity. They're back in the land, but they are a broken people. They are a shattered people. They are a scattered people. And yet... For the encouragement and the comfort that the prophet is called to bring to Israel, his words speak of Jesus. Don't let that be lost on you as we study through this book. Now with that in mind, we come to the second vision. Let's learn the interpretation. Verse 18 again. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The great thing about visions, and I believe the Lord's purpose in them, is they cause us to start thinking. I mean, God could have just said, Zechariah, here's the deal, blah, 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 and off we go. But He gives visions. Because visions stir the mind of human beings. They, they, they draw out our curiosity. They make us want to know more. They cause us to search. I mean, who, who is not captured by a little intrigue, a little curiosity from time to time? God knows how we tick. And Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And He invites us to do that, to be those who search, who dig in, who seek to know. Four horns and four craftsmen. Who comes up with this kind of thing? The Lord. And He invites us to work it out. 
By the way, this vision deals with the glory of kings. Because horns in the Bible, four horns in this vision, horns in the Bible always speak of power and authority. Keep your finger in Zechariah and turn back to 1 Samuel in your Bibles. 1 Samuel. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is the Torah. After the Torah, you have Joshua and Judges and Ruth. And then you come to 1 Samuel. So it's not too hard to find your eight or nine books into the Scriptures. Turn there, 1 Samuel, chapter 2. In 1 Samuel, chapter 2, you meet a woman named Hannah. My daughter's namesake. In chapter 1, Hannah comes to the tabernacle weeping and praying. In fact, she's so upset, the priest there, Eli, thinks she's drunk. She's not. She's upset because she cannot bear a child. She and her husband, Elkanah, have been trying and trying and trying. No, no good. It's not working. She's crying out to the Lord. And she says in that chapter, if you will give me a child, I will dedicate him to you. So in chapter 2, Hannah has gotten pregnant. And she's had a child, and now she's going to bring this child to Eli at the the tabernacle to be raised there. Watch this as she prays. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, if you didn't know that a horn spoke of power and authority, you might think something's weird with Hannah. My horn is exalted in the Lord. What are we talking about here? You know, something off of her head... She got some kind of illness. It's like an elephant man thing. What's going on? <laughs> My horn is exalted in the Lord. My authority belongs to Him is what she's saying. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And she continues praying, but this prayer is a great prophecy. She's speaking the words of the Lord in prayer to the Lord received from the Lord. It's amazing. And that's so often how prayer works. But skip down to verse 10. She continues praying and says, Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And He will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of His anointed. Again, men, listen especially. All true authority, all true power, all credible strength is God's to give. It comes from the Lord and He exalts the horn of His anointed. His Mashiach is the word. The English Messiah. He exalts the authority of Mashiach. The power comes from the Lord. The power is in the Lord. And again, Hannah's prayer is one of thanksgiving for her son, a son that she will name Shemuel. Samuel. Skip on ahead to chapter 16. 1 Samuel, chapter 16. Where Samuel is eventually tasked with the anointing of a 17-year-old boy named David. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 16. Now the Lord said to Shemuel, 
I just like saying it that way. Sounds like what you know my kids do on the counter with their food. You know, shmuel. You got shmueled it all over the counter. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So here a horn is a horn. (laughs) It's not a representation. It's simply an animal's horn, most likely used as a flask filled with anointing oil. So Samuel takes this and he heads on over to Bethlehem. And skip down to about verse 12. He gets to Bethlehem. He meets with Jesse. He goes through seven of Jesse's sons thinking each one is going to be the king that God has selected, but none of them fit the bill. And so finally Shemuel says, do you have any other? And they they think for a minute, well, it can't possibly be. There's David out with the sheep. Call him in. So they call him in. Verse 12, he sent and brought him in and he was ruddy, which means reddish, red-haired with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Shemuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Shemuel arose and went up to Ramah. He takes his flask, his, his horn of animal oil. He pours it over David's head. And David now becomes anointed by the horn. But he is not the horn of anointing. He's not the horn of Israel who would be the anointed of the Lord. He's just David. Listen again to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and will exalt the horn of His anointed. Now, at the time that Shemuel anointed David, Shemuel must have thought that's what mom was praying about all those years ago. It wasn't. She's praying about an anointed far greater, one who would come from his body. Skip on ahead to the book of Psalms. Right about in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 132. Psalm 132, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. Zion referring to all of Jerusalem. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision... I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. What happened just outside of the gates of Jerusalem? The horn of David, Mashiach, Jesus Christ, sprung forth. He resurrected from the dead. And the prophecy going all the way back to Hannah's song and then the anointing of David and now in Psalm 132, the prophecy of the horn of the, of the Lord. The horn of David speaks of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who said in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David. The one who came before and the one who comes after the bright morning star. 
And there's your perfect authority. There is your ultimate power right there. The horn of David. The anointed of the Lord Jesus. Now go back to Zechariah. Now take you on that little rabbit trail there because the prophet did not, could not know and see all that we can know and see about Jesus today. He may have had a sense that this was Israel's Messiah. But not like we are privileged to look back and see and know and understand. Like all the prophets, they made careful searches and inquiries, you know, trying to figure out at what time and in what person the Spirit of Christ was going to arrive. The Spirit of Christ was telling them this was all going to take place. But in Zechariah, we know that the the prophet would have at least known this much. That as he's looking at these horns, there's a representation of power. There's a representation of authority, superpower authority to scatter God's people collectively. In fact, he even calls them out there in verse uh, 19, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Jake's son, Israel, and Jerusalem. All of them. Jake's son's name is Judah. The picture here, the idea, is everybody, all of the Jewish people. No one's left out. Verse 19, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Which have. That's interesting. We read that as past tense. Oh, So this is something that's already happened. Well, you know, if you've studied prophecy, phrases like which have oftentimes are simply, well, it's called a proleptic phrase. A proleptic phrase is a phrase that's used to speak of the certainty of prophecy. These things which have, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we have been seated with Him in the heavenly places. Anybody been seated in the heavenly places here this morning? We are seated positionally. But I haven't been there. You haven't been there. And yet our position, our seating with Jesus is so absolutely secure that when Paul writes it, he says, we've been seated. You know, if I say this morning, be seated, you all sit down, you're seated. As far as God's concerned, people who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ are already seated. You have your position, your place in heaven. Well, that's marvelous. And that's what the prophet is saying here. The angel actually to the prophet, these are the horns which have scattered. In other words, this is so absolutely certain, you can count on these horns fulfilling the job. Which have. It's spoken as if it's all said and done. Why are there four of them? Four horns. Some commentators say this represents the four directions of the map, the four courses of the winds. Or maybe the four corners of earth. In other words, north, south, east, and west in every direction. That what the Lord is saying here, that the vision is of universal worldview opposition to the Jewish people. An overall generic, international, antagonistic anti-Semitism. Kind of like what we see broiling in the world today. Where world opinion is increasingly against tiny Israel. It still is remarkable to me how the mass of the globe can look at this tiny country as problematic. Why would we... How many people are worried about New Jersey? (laughs) I mean, aside from those who live there. And that's the size of Israel. It's it's incredible to me, yet the world... Oh, Israel's a problem. And, And the world is gathered against. 
Last week, Friday, the 26th, so, yeah, I guess a week ago, whatever. September 26th, whatever that day was. In a fiery and contentious address before the United Nations, Mahmoud Abbas, President of the Palestinian Authority, called for a new UN resolution to set a firm deadline for Israeli withdrawal from all the occupied territories. From his perspective, the occupied territories would include, obviously, all of the Gaza Strip and all of what is called by the media the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. That Israel needs to withdraw from all of these occupied territories. And by the way, you need to know that international law defines these territories not as occupied, but as disputed. So even setting aside the spiritual ramifications of all of this, international law does not say that the Jews are occupying the territory, but that this is a disputed territory. That there's contention over it, and there's an argument about who should be there. Man, I can can accept that. I get that there's frustration there. But these are not occupied lands. They're disputed lands, and that's a completely different thing. But here's, here's the deal. The Abbas Resolution, which would gather support from the United Nations to put even further pressure on Israel to pull out and give up all that land, will most likely find support from the nine Security Council members needed for it to pass. Britain will likely abstain from the vote, forcing the United States to use its veto power, which we've done in the past. Abbas said if the United States uses their veto power on this on this resolution, they will be isolated from the world community. If someone had said that 20, 30 years ago, I might have said, whatever, veto. But today, the U.S. is getting more and more isolated, even for its size. How many more times... I wonder, will the United States have the backbone to use its veto power in favor of Israel? Now, this is not boring politics, and maybe you think it is. The reason I mention this and the reason I bring these things up in teaching is because we're talking about biblical prophecy. Because it's Zechariah through whom the Lord says, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Listen, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. Right? We read that last week. Listen to this line. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Does that leave anybody out? No. That means that at some point on the timeline here, America will join the nations of the world to be gathered against Jerusalem. Against Israel. The authority given to the horns to scatter God's people will never, ever be given again. What are you talking about? Well, stay with me here. Let me see if I can explain this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. It says He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The first time was the return from Babylon. Right here where Zechariah is. That was the first regathering. But Isaiah prophesied long before that, God's going to do it a second time. 
Guess what? The second time started oh right around 1948. Actually a little bit before that as the Lord has begun this regathering process we've been watching. And I say that the authority given to the four horns to scatter the Jewish people has been given past tense and will never be given again because God has now gathered His people back to the land and they will not be scattered if I'm reading biblical prophecy correctly. They're back, baby, and they're there for good. So what do the four horns represent if it's not a generic global thing including the United States and everybody in the world right now? Well, we know this from being on this side of history. We know exactly what the four horns are. Which four great world powers scattered Israel? By 520 B.C., Zechariah had already seen two of them. Nebuchadnezzar saw all four of them in his dream we talked about last Sunday. The dream of the gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay statue. Nebuchadnezzar saw that statue Four different aspects of this, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel saw all four of these in a beastly vision in Daniel chapter 7, where he saw a vision of a lion with eagle's wings, a devouring bear, a flying leopard with four heads, and a terrifying iron-toothed beast with ten horns (laughs) and a little horn. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Four horns, four superpowers, four dictatorships, four world nations that would scatter and did scatter Israel. Two of them had already been at work at the time of Zechariah. Two more were yet to come. Greece and Rome were just around the corner. And the beast with the iron teeth and the ten horns speaks of Rome. But there's that little horn, that annoying arrogant, blasphemous little horn. What's that all about? It's a fifth authority that we have not yet seen. One that will rise, will sprout in these last days. But even that coming world power, like all the others before it, like the four before it, is going to rise, going to seek to scatter Israel, and will fall disastrously. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. So the four horns, let's be clear, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Those are the four horns. Verse 20, the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. So he's pointing to the horns. And he says, but these craftsmen have come to terrify them and to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Throw down. I like that. The craftsmen are coming to throw down the horns, and it is an historic throw down. The horns scatter Israel. The craftsmen smash the nations. The vision speaks of Two things by way of interpretation, and I'll give you a third thing by way of application. It speaks, first of all, of national devastations. That these four great world powers would be devastated because they scattered God's people. And that fifth world power I mentioned, the little horn, that's going to be shattered as well. 
But at the same time, this prophecy brings comfort to Israel because it not only speaks of national devastation, it speaks of Israel's preservation. And my people will be secure through this. My people will be returned to the land. I will take care of you, God says. By use of my four craftsmen. Who are they? The word craftsmen in the Hebrew is harash. Or harashim in the plural, craftsmen. And it means a smith, an artisan, a stonemason. The angel of the Lord explains that the craftsmen represent those who throw down each of the four nations who scattered Israel. And ironically, check this out, understand this, the craftsman who threw down Babylon was Cyrus, the horn of Medo-Persia. The craftsman who threw down Persia was Alexander the Great, the horn of Greece. The craftsman who threw down Greece would be mighty Rome. In other words, each time, the, the craftsman was the horn. The craftsman was the next horn who threw down the previous horn. Do you understand that? The horns being the powers and the craftsmen being those who throw down the power before them and then rise up in power themselves. But remember, as I said, the Bible teaches a little horn will grow out of the fourth horn, which is Rome. So a, a little power will spring up out of what was once a great world power. Rome is not a great world power right now. It's a nice place to visit. You know, it's got some nice artifacts, inter- interesting buildings. It's not a power. But a little horn is somehow going to be connected from or through or, or with Rome. I don't know exactly how. But that little horn is going to pop up and rise in power. Has not happened. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8. Daniel writes, while I was contemplating the horns, the, the, the ten horns that were on this fourth beast, Rome, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first, first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. This is the one the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. He's not going to have a t-shirt that says, Hello, my name is Antichrist. He's not going to have horns and a little tail. It's just a man. Revelation 13 tells us. The 666, understand, it's just the number of a man. Which means Antichrist will rise up. He's going to be a great world leader. He will gather the nations around him. Everybody's going to think he's got the answer. This man of peace. He's the man. He's the man who can do this. Well, who's going to throw him down? Listen. The fifth and greatest craftsman. Mark 6.3 tells us Jesus was a carpenter. And I find that fascinating because the Hebrew word for harash, meaning a, a, a stonemason, a craftsman, has a parallel in the Greek word tecton, which means a craftsman. Tecton is what is used. That's the word. Jesus was a tecton. He was a, a carpenter. So here comes the craftsman, who is also the horn of David. As each one of the horns and craftsmen are connected before, so here comes Jesus And the horns, we're told in this vision, did scatter the Jews so that as verse 21 says, no man, no man would lift up his head. Jesus is the lifter of heads. 
And there will be a throwdown so complete by Jesus Christ, no nation will stand. You know the verse if you've been here much. Philippians 2.10 At the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the interpretation of the vision. National devastation. Israel's preservation. And so Zechariah speaks. And the interpretation, my friends, is sure. But let's make an application now. A broplication. In our broble study. Brothers especially, listen up. Jesus Christ, the horn of David, the greatest craftsman, offers you a strength in which you can stand. Jesus offers a position in which men and women, but I'm talking to the men right now, in which men can rest and know their rightful place before the Lord. I know that, Rick. Listen. Because that position before the Lord that all men, all men are called to is a humble station. National devastations, Israel's preservation, man's humble station. I'm addressing guys more than our sisters because we struggle with this far more than you ladies do. We guys hunger for power. We want strength, or at least the presumption of power. We want people to think that we're strong, that we've got it together. And I've got a confession to make to you all this morning. I am not among the Harashim or the Tectons. Pastor Rick ain't no craftsman. I'm not a stonemason. I am not a worker with woods. I am not an artisan. I play the guitar. (laughs) And it bugs me to this day. It is an area in my life that makes me, just being honest, it makes me feel deficient. Because there are some of you guys who can put it all together. There are some of you guys who's like, I've got a problem at home, I work it out. You know what I do when I have a problem at home? (laughs) I pick up my cell phone and dial. (laughs) And it happens too fast. I really wish I had a rotary phone, you know, so that I could turn the dial. Anyway, no. I, I have to call people in. And that bugs me. Because I'd love to just get the tools out and make it happen. you got to see my tools. They're all over the house. I don't even have a location. My father-in-law has a man cave. I walk down there sometimes just to breathe manhood. It's like, yeah. (laughs) It's good. It's good. On the window, there's shot glasses. The TV's on with a football game. He's usually cleaning the gun. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And then I go back upstairs and play my guitar. (laughs) And my wife, and maybe some of you ladies would say, Rick, that's just dumb. That's just silly for you to think of that. Or to feel that way, to feel deficient. That's, that's, That's dumb. That's what Cheryl's told me. I'm like, I don't want to hang curtains. I know they're going to be like this. <laughs> well, that's just dumb. Every man gets frustrated with that. I'm like, you're just patronizing me. 
Ladies, you don't get it because you're not men. Although, as the roles get more twisted in our culture, I wonder if women aren't feeling the deficiency of weakness more now than they ever used to. But we guys struggle with this stuff. Guys, how many of you, show of hands, like to be perceived as weak? Come on! Here's the thing. We are weak. And we know it. We just don't want you to know it. We don't want other guys to know it. We don't, know, we don't want the ladies to know it. And we learn that from a very, very young age. When we're playing with our Hot Wheels. My Hot Wheel better get to the end of the track before his. Or I will be weak. The natural man struggles in the flesh to prove himself. To be the man. Be the man. Man up. You know, I mean, that's what we hear in our culture. Even though our culture then turns around and says, don't you dare. So we're like, what do we do? How am I supposed to be a man in this world? We have had this problem since literally the third chapter in our story. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, when God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, which this is why I never do. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the, listen, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. You'll be a man. Until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And ever since the curse was levied on man, we have been working the problem. We have struggled with our identity. Anything other than grunt workers of the ground. You know? We gotta prove ourselves. We gotta work hard. We gotta make stuff grow. We gotta build. We gotta conquer. We gotta overcome. But there's this gnawing little problem out there. We can't do it. We are weak. Four horns. Four craftsmen. Man, that's that's manly stuff. How do you get a horn off an animal? You gotta kill it. Yeah. And tear it off. <laughs> I got my horn, my flask. Remember the first shark's tooth necklace I ever got in Hawaii as a ten year old? I wore that proudly. Where did you get that shark tooth, Rick? Out of the mouth of a shark. He would say, how do you get that scar on your lip? Shark attack. Think about this. The prophecy, the vision, the interpretation. Four great nations. Led by four great rulers, craftsmen. And they're all out there toppling the previous power, all the while losing the power themselves. They topple others, but they themselves are toppled. That is the picture of mankind. I may be able to overcome this guy, but he is waiting in the wings to take me down. And so as strong as I want to present myself... 
I know I am weak. There's always someone stronger. So what's the solution? What is the remedy for the curse that is on us, guys? To become more feminine? It's what our culture is presenting now. Just, just lighten up. Be more in touch with your feminine side. It'll all be good. <laughs> is the solution to deny the created order? As again, our culture is doing. Or is there a solution to be found in the horn of David? In the craftsman, Jesus Christ. Turning your Bibles over to 1 Timothy. We'll, we'll end there this morning. But 1 Timothy... Chapter 1. Timothy is toward the end of the New Testament. So make your way over to the New Testament. Continue going to the right. 1 Timothy is before 2 Timothy. It took me years of Bible study to figure that one out. It's after 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 1 and 2 Timothy. It's right there. Go to 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul is talking to Timothy, a young pastor... A young man trying to make his way in, in this burgeoning new new movement called Christianity. And he says, 1 Timothy 1.18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. By the way, gentlemen, especially fathers of young kids, call your boys son. That is a good, good feeling. I, it, it's so cool because I heard this the other day. My brother and I, uh, when we were out for my birthday thing, my brother Ron, he goes, Rick... Ron has a daughter. He has one daughter. Okay, And he goes, Rick, I heard you talking to Corey the other day, and I heard you call him son. And Ron goes, that's what Dad used to always call us. And he did. We were just son. And I can't tell you what that did for me as a man, as a young man. So fathers, call your kids son. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You want to know the fastest way to shipwreck faith? Fight the wrong fight. Fight the wrong fight. Horn in on the power of Jesus by usurping His authority, men, with false masculinity. You realize that you can usurp the authority, the strength, the position of Jesus Christ if you try to take that position yourself? You undermine Him. He's the great authority, not you. He's the great power, not me. Continuing on in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Ladies, would you do that for us? Would you pray for the men? Would you hold up your husbands in prayer? Your sons in prayer? Your brothers in prayer? Would you look around in this fellowship And rather than undermine, and it hasn't happened, praise the Lord, it hasn't happened, but rather than undermine the men among us in this fellowship, pray for us. Lift us up. All prayers and and entreaties and petitions and thanksgiving. Ladies, it's okay to be thankful for your man. 
and to let Him know you are. And guys, would you pray for each other? That we would be the men that God has called us to be? Read on. He says these prayers on behalf of all men in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's funny to me because that is not the typical life a man seeks to live. You know, the tranquil life, the quiet life, the dignified life. No, we want to live a tough life. Paul says, let's, let's live it the right way. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. And I know some of the ladies will say, well, what about us? He, he talks about you later. <laughs> You're all included in the salvation plan of Jesus. We know that. Let Him talk to the guys for a change. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. How many of you wives desire for your man to be saved? Because right now he's not. One of the stunning realities of this culture is if between a man and a woman, one in the marriage is going to be more faithless, it tends to be the man. One's going to stay home, usually it's the man. Not always, but typically. I've had more conversations with women who are there, and their man is not. Tearful conversations. And ladies, I would encourage you, this is another study for another time, go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and read what Peter advises about how to win your man for Christ. It's not what you think. He desires all men to be saved. Know that, by the way, also as an encouragement, ladies, if your man is at home, God wants him saved. More than you do. He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is the knowledge of the truth? Verse 5. That there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In other words, who to man? <laughs> Who's the captain of the Lord's host? Who's the furnace walker? Who's the red rider? Who's the horn of David? Who is the cross bearer? Jesus is the man. And you, brothers, I will find our best manhood in Jesus. Paul presents him as the perfect man. Jesus is my perfect man, Paul would write. And he's ours. Savior, yes. Lord, absolutely but also the ideal man. Bros, if you want to be the man, be like Jesus. Emulate Him. Study Him. Pattern yourself after Him. Do what He did. Act like He acted. Pray the way He prayed. Soak yourself in His thoughts and His teachings and His ways. And by the way, His teachings and His ways begin in Genesis chapter 1 and run through the book of Revelation. Because it's all about Jesus. He is the power and He is the authority. Don't horn in on that by some false sense of what the world says a man is supposed to be. Look to Him for strength. Finally, verse 8, He says, Therefore, I want the men 
in every place. And he is speaking now directly to the men because in verse 9 he'll start to talk to the women. And we're not going to deal with that this morning. (laughs) I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let me ask you guys another tough question. Why is it more women show up for prayer gatherings than men? Now we have begun to see a shift here at the fellowship in that. We're beginning to see men showing up in larger numbers just to pray. Just to pray. Men gathering for the purpose of prayer. Men stepping up. I love that. But there is still a problem in our culture of men sitting back and letting their wives be the spiritual head of the house. That's messed up. That is unbiblical. That is not godly. And again, we're not talking about a man lording it over his house. Today, we'll be studying from Leviticus. Everybody sit down and shut up. (laughs) We're talking about the man being engaged in spiritual decisions, engaged in the spiritual education of their children, engaged in loving and directing and encouraging his wife in her relationship with the Lord, and her with him. Biblical manhood. Husbands, you cannot love your wives as Christ loved the church with your hands in your pockets. Get your hands up in prayer. Unashamed of it. Unabashed. Outward prayer. Hold up Bibles in study. Lift up Jesus in faith. And don't worry about what it looks like to other men or to the women in this world. Follow Jesus in emulation, in true masculinity because the four horns came along and man did they think they were great scattering God's people followed by the four craftsmen throwing down the horns before them and all of them thought they were the man but the horn of David the carpenter the craftsman Jesus Christ the one who is like no other he's the man to follow so let's follow him Guys, let's, let's be like Him. When it's time to stand for the Lord, stand up. For there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the man. Men, would you stand up with me? Guys, I want to call you to commitment. I'm going to pray and just ask you to pray with me in your hearts. But don't do it unless you're committed to it. But if you want to be a man like Jesus in this world, I invite you to pray after me in your hearts to the Lord. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we lift up holy hands in prayer. We ask you, Lord to give us a strength and a courage as men that we have never known. To accept the position that you first called Adam to. The position that he gave up. To accept, Lord, the position, Jesus, that you paid for at the cross. To be men of God. Lord, at this critical time in the history of the world, I commit myself to you to be a man of God knowing that I do not have the strength to do it. I come before you, hands raised, Lord, as a weakling who desperately needs your power and strength to do what I'm praying. 
I pray, Father, You will be the lifter of our heads, the strengthener of our souls, the washer of our spirits, that You as the the craftsman would, would, Lord, craft in us behavior as men and mentalities as men created by a loving Creator. Help us to be like Jesus. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.